So growing up for me, growing up for me, I did not know a single gay person. I didn't. Uh, that was my experience as a kid. That was my experience as a teenager. That was my experience as a young adult. As far as I knew, gay people didn't exist. They were like unicorns and leprechauns. You know, you read about them and you thought maybe you might encounter one someday, but not really, okay? So as it turns out, however, I did know people that were gay. I, I grew up with them as a kid. I went to high school with them. Uh, I went to college with them, and I went to a Christian college, okay? And so now, uh, as it turns out, and today in my Facebook feed, you know, I've got friends who are, have a partner, a man who has a man partner, a woman who has a woman partner. Um, and it's, it's there for uh, everybody to see. Um, they'll post pictures of what they're doing. And uh, this last year, because of a change in law in Kentucky, uh, a couple of sets of friends of mine uh, got married, one of them very traditionally so. Um, she was in a tux and her, uh, her wife was in a gown, right? And it was the traditional wedding that you might expect in so many regards, except both of them were women. Um, and so uh, a few of these people, a few of these people are more than just acquaintances for me. They're people that I care about deeply. Uh, they're people that I love. And I've gone through highs in life with them and lows in life with them. And the truth is, I love them. And because of the way, because of that, because of the proximity, the way that I talk about this, I've noticed is different than the way a lot of my evangelical, famous evangelical, you know, acquaintances talk about it. Um, and I'll have people sometimes say to me, well, you know, you don't sound like you're traditional or you don't sound like you know, these other evangelicals, and I'll have to say, well, yes and no. Um, the thing for me is that gay, lesbian, that kind of stuff has moved from a category to something up close and personal. Let me give you a couple examples. I run into people all the time who will say something, some version of, oh, man, must be nice to be a teacher, you know. You get three months off during the summer. You log off work at 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and then like every other week, there's like a holiday or a break. Oh, I love that. Now, if you're married to a teacher or you teach, you know, you're like, that's not reality. What are you smoking? But for them, it's just a category. Another way this plays out is PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome. You know, you know, that's just a made-up thing. You know, they just need to get over it. But then you're, you know someone, you care about someone deeply, and they struggle with that issue. And going into a room with people, you know, they're breaking out in hives and everything else. You're like, oh, no, it's a little bit more than that, right? It's up close and personal. Cancer, same thing. You know, it's easy. Uh, you don't understand how horrible cancer is until you know somebody and care about somebody deeply who dies of cancer. Um, I just had this happen last week. I was on Asbury's campus a couple of different times, and, and somebody I know, an acquaintance of mine, stopped me out as, I, as I was walking out of the administration building to tell me the long story of how his died, dad died of pancreatic cancer. And he knew my dad had died of pancreatic cancer. And you know, as we're having this half-hour conversation, he cried twice. But I, I get it. I get what he went through. Like, there's that connection part, okay? The, the same thing has happened to me about this category that I used to call homosexuality. It's now up close and personal in my life because there are people in my life that I care about deeply that are, quote, in the lifestyle. And because of that, my approach in my language has been a little different than the Christian 
stereotypical Christian thing of, well, you know, we, we, love, we love the sinner, but we hate the sin. You know, there are these phrases that get thrown out a lot of the time. And sometimes people have wrongly assumed, they'll say, well, Max, it's so great you're a cool pastor. You're okay with gay. And I, I'm like, no, I'm okay with people. <laughs> I'm okay with people. There's a difference, okay? I, I actually stand squarely in the, the Christian tradition and teaching about what marriage is. The, the New Testament's clear in that it defines marriage as something between a man and a woman. We, see, we hear it from the, the lips of Jesus himself. Uh, Christians, by the way, from the earliest days practiced that and didn't deviate from it. They took Christianity to Asia. They took it to the continent of Africa where polygamy was still practiced and Christians were like, yeah, you're gonna have to change that. Um, the only big major offshoot where uh, an offshoot of Christianity has deviated from that is happened here in America. Do you know who did it? The Mormons. In the 1800s, the Mormons came along and they were like, hey, one man can have a lot of wives. And then most everybody was like, I don't think you should do that. That sounds uncool, okay? And <laughs> so they kind of stopped that practice. Um, but by and large, throughout Christian history, it's been pretty, it's been pretty consistent. Um, and so I say to you this morning, I, I stand in that tradition. I do, I stand in that tradition that affirms that marriage is between a man and a woman and that God's design for sex is within the context of marriage. But that doesn't mean that I become critical and judgmental and that I carry placards around with me and protest things. The way in which I engage is a little different. And that's what I wanna talk to you about today. I think that for some Christians, because the church has been so harsh in its stand, um, that they've wanted to mitigate some things in the Bible, and they will say it in the, the lens of, they will say, well, shouldn't everything be done through the lens of love? And shouldn't love, you know, and just live and let live? And so they'll, they'll talk about those kinds of things, and really, they're probably their main beef is how the church has responded. In, in their mind, it seems so inconsistent with the gospel of grace and love and everything else. And so that's what I want to talk to you about today, if I can do that. Um, I want to talk about the way that we engage the LGBT community as a church. And I want to say to you that the way in which we do that, we need to make some tweaks. And I want to suggest a major tweak today with some practical application. All right? To do that, I want to be in the book of Genesis. So if you brought a Bible, you can open it to page one. Well, we're not even going to go far in the Bible today. It's like page one in my Bible. It's literally page one. Okay, say so Genesis chapter one. Kind of excited when it's easy to find. <laughs> Genesis chapter one, verses 26 through 31, and they'll put it on the big screen. And God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Whew. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. And God said, look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I've given every green plant as food for all the wild animals and birds in the sky and the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And that is what happened. And God looked over all that he had made and he saw 
that it was very good. Genesis is this prologue to the story of salvation. It's the Bible's way of beginning the best of all stories. The drama in Genesis is a drama of relationship between creature and creator, us and God. And we're told in these opening pages that people, men and women, are like animals. Men and women are animals, but we're more than that. Men and women are like God, but less than that. The image of God is something that is critically important that I think in some ways we've lost culturally uh, and, and lost as, as Christians. And so he says this in verses 26 and 27, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish, blah, 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 blah. Verse 27, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There are a couple of aspects about this. One is the biological part. Some people have a penis, other people have a vagina. There's a difference, right? Male and female. The other part has to do with gender. And gender is what we convey on the outside. If you look at me right now, would you guess that I'm a man or a woman? Man, right? I part my hair. I, you know, I've got a V-neck sweater. I, I'm the classic middle-aged man. <laughs> with big clunky brown shoes. Boom, okay? So part of gender is what we, is the outside thing. And then the other part of gender is the stuff that's on the inside, how we feel about it, and how we feel about how our culture defines masculinity and femininity. And sometimes you are aware that that changes, right? If you look at pictures of Teddy Roosevelt when he was a baby, he looks like a little girl. They dressed him in pink, put him in a little dress. That's what they did to all the little boys back then. And then somewhere around the 1940s, the colors switched in America, and pink became girl, and, and blue became boy. But 150 years, right, and some of you are like, really? I know, go Google Teddy Roosevelt, look at his baby pictures, and go, what? <laughs> okay, so all of that is part of it. All of that is part of it. So... Our sex and sexuality has divine origins. It's not by accident. And in verse 31, and God looked over all he had made and saw that it was very good. Being created in the image of God is where we should start with our engagement with the LGBT community. To say to them, you are made in God's image and because of that, you have inerrant worth and dignity. The way we tend to go about this conversation in the church is we start from a second truth, you're a sinner, you're broken. Both are true, right? But we tend to start with that second truth, and so it, it complicates things. Um, and so I want to suggest to us as a community of faith that we need to flip that in our engagement on this issue. Um, we start by affirming the image of God, and the second truth is, we're sinners. We're broken people who need redemption. Um, the, the wonderfully amazing thing about this doctrine, the doctrine of the Imago Dei, the image of God, is that Christians have a corner on the market on this. Did you know that most other cultures throughout human history have made the individual subservient to the tribe or the state? You're not as important because you're not going to be around. The state and the tribe is what matters. Christians coming in and affirming that everybody's made in God's image, 
created things like rights. Did you know that that comes from Christianity and the Christian doctrine of the image of God? Uh, as an aside political note, I'd much rather it be the case that the government that I'm living under recognizes that my rights are given to me by God rather than some arbitrary politician somewhere saying, well, you can have these rights for now. <laughs> I'm better off in the first category than I am in the second category. All right, so I think we need to flip that, okay? Because when our focus in engaging with this, with uh, issues related to same-sex attraction and gender identity and all those types of things, when we come at it first through the primary lens of sinner, you're a sinner, you're broken, um, unintentionally, the way that plays out is we have this expectation, we, we communicate unintentionally, you need to get rid of this gayness and get your act together so that you can be acceptable to God. That's what they hear. I, I've sat and talked and listened to many of them, and that's what they hear. So I need to do these things in order that I can be acceptable to God. Um, and so... Uh, it, it's, it's a very, very rough place to be, mostly because for all of us, did we get our act together in order to be acceptable to God? Like when it came to that codependency issue or the fact that we were bitter or you know, the fact that we overeat all the time or we just spend more money than we make constantly, did, you know, right? So we know that God's acceptance of us was based on what Jesus did on our behalf. And so we kind of need to keep that in mind as we're interfacing with these people. So I simply want to suggest that we start by affirming as a primary truth, you're made in God's image and you have inerrant worth and dignity because of that. And yep, you're broken, I'm broken. We are a broken and rebellious people. We're sinners who need a savior. Um, by the way, we see that I think in Romans 5, 8 where... Um, here, I'll just read it to you because I'm right there. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. He came because we're, so, we're valuable, we're made in his image, and we were broken and needed help, right? So by flipping the priorities of these two truths, I think we can change the way that we interact with people in the uh, LGBT community. We can look for God at work in them. So... I want to suggest some practical ways to, to flesh this out. Um, one would be to simply watch language. Um, you'll, no, you'll notice from me, I don't use the word homosexual. I just don't. I, I use the LGBT. I'll say lesbian and gay. If you use the word homosexual, it's kind of like using the word Negro. You can use it, right? But people don't anymore. So it's just a language thing, and it's a way that we can be kind in how we're talking about this particular issue. The second thing is to pray and listen. Pray. You got friends, you have people that you know and you care about, pray. Pray for them. As you're praying, though, ask yourself, what kind of prayers are you praying and how are you praying? I have a, a, a couple of friends that uh, they had... Uh, a friend they care deeply about who announced, I'm lesbian and I'm going to marry this person. And so their prayers were this. God, break up this relationship. Devastate them. God, convict them of their sin. Da, da, da. And as I was talking to them, I said, if, if your friend's issue was codependency, would you be praying that way? 
God, break, you know, and for them it was like, well, no, I, w- I would want God to be merciful. I would want them to see truth. I would want them to be open and respond to God. I'm like, maybe you should pray that way for your friend who's having these issues, right? Because issues are issues. We all have issues. Um, another, uh, another part is to simply listen. Uh, three or four years ago, I spent about half a year and I had a series of appointments with members in the LGBT community in Lexington and I got out a notebook. I just asked questions. So, tell me, what's your experience? What's your interfacing with church? How's that been? What are, you know, what do you see culturally? You know, and I just took notes and I listened. The interesting thing is with one lady after the third or fourth time together, she said, she asked me, well, what's your reading of scripture? And I told her. And, and, she's, and instead of, well, anger, it was, oh, I can, I can respect that. And it, it, it allowed for a real conversation about truth and God and sexuality and, and all these things that are, that are part of us. The, the last couple of things are easy. I think in the church today, in the coming decade, we're going to have to say sorry for things that were not necessarily our fault, but we have to do in order to build bridges. So... One of the things I've noticed about people in the LGBT community is that they're really angry at the church. They're really angry. And angry people when, tend to lash out, right, and do things because they're angry. And that's just how it works. Um, and I was talking to a pastor friend recently who was worried that he might get sued for this or that. I said, yeah, that's, that's, that's probably a likelihood, right? Because, you know, if, if, if I'm in power and I feel I've been wronged by someone who's no longer in power, I'm going to use that power the way power tends to get used, right? <laughs> going to hurt them. It's just how it works, right? So the, the last thing is simply this, and it's a reminder of what God does. John Wesley has this doctrine called prevenient grace, all right? Prevenient grace. What he means by that is God is at work in everybody's life, even though you may not be able to see it or sense it right away. God made people, God loves people so much that God really is at work in everybody's life, whether you can see it or not. God is attempting to draw people to himself. God is a pursuer of people. And the other thing about God is that because of the way the Holy Spirit works, God convicts of sin. He does. He does. God does that. And so what I have found to be true with any issue is there's usually about a year or two-year window for most people. They come in, they're part of a community of faith, they're, they're making steps toward Jesus, they, they see some things in their life that are out of step with the way of Jesus. Maybe it's codependency, maybe they're angry because they feel that their father wronged them in a big way. There are a whole list you could make of these types of things. What typically happens is that within that year and a half, two year period, they either start taking steps toward Jesus and there's surrender and there's growth and they're, they're convicted by the Holy Spirit and they're growing and, and they're taking those steps or they get to a certain point and they're like, no, no, I can't give that up. I'm not gonna stop being angry or, or any number of things and they'll start walking away from Jesus. And I, I've had it to where people that I'm, I've been ministering to, like I'll call them and they won't answer, they won't return my calls. And it, for, for the longest time when I was younger, I'd be like, oh man, I failed as a pastor, I failed ministering. And then I wisened up and I realized that God's at work in everybody's life. 
And because they were taking steps away from Jesus, I represent who? Jesus. <laughs> it, makes steps, it makes sense that they would also take steps away from me. So when you're, when you're loving people and, and working with people who have any number of issues, know that there's this window for a lot of us and we either move toward Jesus and, and accept his authority and kingship in our life and, and we'll surrender things and take another step and sometimes it's three steps forward, right, and two steps back and it's messy that way. But overall, our trajectory is toward Jesus or, right, sometimes we get to a point where we're like, you know what, I can't and I won't change this codependency and this is more important to me than you. It's a hard thing, but some people choose those types of things in life. So I wanted to deliver a message like this because I just wanted you to start thinking. Um, I wanted you to start thinking because I think the ways in which we talk about this are probably going to have to change in the church. God's truth doesn't change. Um, and but the way that we engage it and the way that we engage this issue and how we go about these things is probably going to take some tweaking in the days and months and years ahead, especially in the culture in which we find ourselves. So I wanted this mostly to be an opportunity to maybe plant some seeds so that as a community of faith, as has been the case with this entire series, this series has prompted a lot of conversations, and it's been good the conversations that are taking place. So the real nitty-gritty stuff is what happens when we're at a table or we're having coffee together and we're having a conversation about something. Um, so the biggest, if I could wrap this up, uh, and you should know, man, like this particular message, I, I've not struggled and wrestled and, and it's given me no end of grief and when, when we all walk out of this room, I'm gonna be like, thank you, God, thank you, okay? It's the, one of the language, one of the metaphors that we tend to use in our, our culture is the language of war. You know, there's a war for this culture, right? And there are people that will put posts for and against and, you know, you know uh, these people are trying to take away your rights and, and there's a homosexual agenda, there's a Christian agenda and it's a war. We have a war on drugs, a war on obesity, a war on terrorism. All these wars are going badly. <laughs> okay, all of these wars are going badly. Ironically, Jesus, when he came in, he started a revolution, but it wasn't couched in terms of war. He was revolutionary in what he did. He encountered people who were broken, sinful people. He front-loaded the relationships with acceptance. Some people said yes. Some people signed on, and they began to follow him and let him lead. Other people decided that for whatever reason or set of reasons, they didn't want Jesus in the driver's seat. That was true 2,000 years ago, and it's going to be true today. Our job is to follow Jesus and point people to Jesus and help them to follow Jesus. That's our job. It's simple, but it's hard and messy. But it's wonderful because it's neat to see over the years all the people who do. God works, and they're like, yes and they, they have a breakthrough where they take three steps forward and two steps back, but they're moving toward Jesus, and you go, yes, that's awesome, okay? So that's what I wanted to plant today is that seed. I'm gonna ask our musicians to come up, and we're gonna close out our time together by singing a song by Gunger, Beautiful Things. 
which really kind of, in a better way, summarizes what I'm tried to say in words, right? But I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. And one of the beautiful things about the message of the gospel that we bring to this world is that God takes what is broken and messy and disjointed and out of whack and unwhole and sick and he makes it into this tapestry that is beautiful and whole. It's not automatic, it's not overnight, but it is a wondrous thing. Will you sing with us? And... Um.